in the fabric of our national consciousness. We have, and we are, and we always will be hero worshipers. And we can blame the founding fathers for that to some level, but also the enlightenment and a national desire to find and esteem people that we can look up to, that we can idolize. We can measure and compare our own lives to. Blame George Washington, if you must, but also realize that each generation finds its own torchbearers. Buffalo Bill, Susan Anthony, Abraham Lincoln, John Wayne, Teddy Roosevelt, Rambo, of course, Mickey Mouse, Mary Poppins, Martin Luther King Jr., Captain Kirk, Captain Picard, for those who like him, Pac-Man, Mario, Luke Skywalker, Neo, Superman, Spider-Man, and of course, yes, Taylor Swift. There it was. I have pause for woo after Taylor Swift. We find our heroes both nationally, but also locally, of course. Mothers, fathers, teachers and coaches, and even pastors can be a shoot-up. Many find the moment in true heroic moment, from an immaculate reception to Iwo Jima, to Lewis and Clark, to Jackie Kennedy, that these persons come in crisis, but also in joy. And in fact, many of our heroes that we hero worship are fictitious. So it's not surprising that all of us want to be seen as heroic, yes? None of us necessarily want to be seen as a villain. And even then, we'd like to be a heroic villain for the sake of villainy. If you think about the list I just gave in the context of being a hero, we all want to be seen as some sort of hero at the end of our lives. Case in point, we're going to play a quick game called Pastor Scott's Doppelganger. Now, there's three different options I'm going to give to you this morning. And each one, I have been called out in airports, in restaurants, and in just average, normal, everyday life. Are you ready? The first one, of course, is Chris Hayes from NSNBC. He's a host. Oh, my God. <laughs> Most of the time, people call this one out, and they are wearing suits because they watched MSNBC. Go to the next one real quick. If you don't believe it, there, there I am. Hold on. Number two, this one is some of you may not know. Some of you may know. This is Steve from Blue's Clues. If you don't know what Blue's Clues is, you're either too young or you're too old, okay? This is a very much a blip on the radar of your conscious. Now, Steve mysteriously disappeared several years ago, so I also have a confession to make during this sermon. I am not Steve from Blue's Clues. Don't worry, don't worry. That did not happen. I am not him, but it really worked well when I was a youth pastor and I was shaved and I wore a striped shirt. My youth group could not handle themselves when they figured this out. And then, of course, hold on, wait for it. This is my favorite one, and this one you can always call me, okay? Just as an aside, in case you just don't like Pastor Scott for a moment, I will respond to this. Ready? There he is. Why are some of you moaning? It's heroic. And... Guess what? Iron Man had the thing in his chest to make him not die. I have an insulin pod <laughs> that makes me not die to the point where at a VBS several years ago, I convinced all the kids that, yes, I am, in fact, Iron Man. <laughs> and they all believed it. So there we go. Give me one more of those. Come on. Give me, the, give me the bonus one. Here we go. Right there. No? Yes? No? One more? One more? The Iron Man picture? Do we got the Iron Man picture? There he is. That is me. <laughs> Heroism is exceptionally unique because all three of those persons, those actual people, not me, could be considered heroic to different folks. One in finance, one in children's education, and one in 
defeating Thanos, of course. But the heroism is exceptionally unique. What I see as a gift in one person will be cursed by another. See, we are fickle just as much as we see a hero on one sports team as the arch villain in another, like Steph Curry. I want to illustrate this. I was waiting for ooh, Steph Curry. I want to illustrate this. Raise your hand if you'd like your hero to be brave. Yeah, most of us would say, yeah, brave. That's a, that's a, good, that's a good description for a hero. How about decisive? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, they would be a quick decision. Some of you are kind of hesitating now. What about sarcastic? Yeah, some giggling, okay? But I saw less hands. How about cautious? Oh, oh, oh. Equitable? Yeah. Prosperous? Did some people raise your hand twice for equitable and, pro- and prosperous? Collaborative? Reflective? Daring? Explosive? And humble? All of these adjectives we use when we describe our heroes and the perfect hero. And so devices like Gallup, the Enneagram, Finder, and so many others try to calculate the overall heroic potential. Countless classes, books, and so many worthless books have been written on this topic. <laughs> Leadership and her- her- heroism are easy to sense but hard to define. And equally been disappointed by so many. From moral failings to inaccurate descriptions of ourselves. Disappointed too often by those we emulate. So rarely can we watch a figure from a distance nowadays and not be disappointed to one level or another. But all the more so, it comes when you get to know that person quite personally. It is why spouses, children, and close relatives of heroic figures are often caught caught in a tough situation. They see the person in their weakest of times and not just the best like many of the celebrity worship we see happening. And in a day and age where privacy is no longer a real thing, constant character of our heroes is at an all-time low. Which is why, I believe, fictitious heroes, like in the Marvel and DC universes, are resurfacing with all these accolades of movies, while our true persons are actually suffering. Why so many people want to find the dirt on otherwise clean and upstanding persons, all while remaining, reimagining past heroic epochs in ways that they were never intended. And I have been disappointed personally in heroes in my own life, well, getting too personal, these have ranged from both teachers to family mes- members, politicians to sports icons. Thanks, Polini and Frost. Yet there have been so many that remain and evolve in my own personal life. And there are a few that I viewed as an enemy who later today I now look at as a pioneering prophet. More on that in sermons to come. One activity that I have done in many of these times to sober the view of what a hero is and who a hero is to my own vision is to write out a leadership testimony. As we talked about last week with Pastor Mike on our dialogue, I use this idea of a rule of testimony in almost every day of my ministry. That as I look at a person, I don't see who they are in the moment. I realize that they have moments before that have brought them to me. And they will have a lot of moments, hopefully afterwards, where their testimony is not just here and now, but it's evolving in the future. And it's come from a past that is hard to define. The rule of testimony for me states that I cannot just base a person on where they are right now, but I need to base them on their entire testimony. And that counts for heroes too. So often, the temptation is to say, oh, it's a person with a family and they have two and a half kids and they tithe at $2 million a Sunday. They're awesome. They're the perfect Christian. I have nothing left to do with them. Come into my church. While those who come in with no kids, or 25 kids, or tithing $1, or 
$200 or no dollars. Yeah, they're too much work. They're too hard. So I'm going to exclude them from the church in ways that are both seen and unseen and not in, take into consideration the entire testimony of who that person will become. So I look in the rule of testimony for the highs and the lows, the unexpected hurdles that that hero and that person has had to face, for the failures, successes, the overall arc. Who did they come from? More importantly, how do they come to hold the power of hero? The great example of that is Abraham Lincoln. When you understand the person where he's come from, the place and the context of where he had to become heroic, and then what happens after his heroism, he is the perfect person to understand that rule of testimony and understand the hero arc of his life. You can sum up the morality, the holiness, the humility, and what they do to better all of humanity. And this also works when trying to particular persons in the Bible where we get a larger glimpse on their life. Characters like Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Ruth, <laughs> Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther, Jesus, and Paul, and several of the apostles have enough of their life recorded in Scripture that we can analyze their heroics in being in the Bible versus only those we just get a little tiny snippet of. And this applies so much more in the Old Testament than to King David himself. We heard the Scripture a moment ago from 1 Chronicles outlining David's reign as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, king of Israel. And in a sense, Scripture uses Samuel's, both first and second, and Chronicles, both first and second, as a large-scale leadership overview of David's life. Here we see people write out David's life, but also the King Saul, and also Samuel the prophet. Why? Why not just call it first and second David, or just first David? Because... We have to understand the context of where David emerges from, from a time of judges, of unrest, of tribes that are kind of united together. And David comes in and has to become king. Of replacing an evil king named Saul, who though who had his moments of success and triumph on the battlefield, failed miserably to be an equitable and good king in God's eyes specifically. These books give us a wide array of outsiders and national emergencies, along with the highest of highs but also the lowest of lows. We know that there's other books written that have long since been extinct. We heard that in the scripture reader a moment ago. But I'm going to use 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel this morning to really give us the five scenes of David's life to understand this entire person as a hero of Israel. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. We're going to just jump right in. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, the king before you? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Love that verse. Love that line. That God somehow looks at David's heart in a moment and says, yeah, that's the guy. Not the firstborn, not the one who comes in, who looks the part, but the one who God can analyze from the inside out. Obviously, this has huge ramifications today and could be another sermon. But we see that 
over and over and over. Jesse's sons come before Samuel and God says, no, 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 no. Until we finally get to the next verses. So we ask Jesse, Samuel, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and he brought him in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Which leads us to a separate but incredibly important scene in, or event in scene two, which really runs through in some ways through his entire reign as king. Before we get to scene two, I want to give you a contemporary example of what this looks like. Garage attendant for garage number four here in Tallahassee has a prophet of God pull up to get a ticket and says, hey, by the way, you are now the president of these United States. Drives through. The garage attendant thinks, that's crazy, right? But this is really what happens. That a no-name shepherd in the middle of Israel is proclaimed king all while there's still a king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And so Samuel and David are having to rethink how they're going to interact with Saul, who still has all the power and the army and several different sons who could take the throne from him if he would die. But we see God works behind the scenes in heroes' lives. God orchestrates these little divine appointments, these places that don't make any sense to us cognitively, but definitely make sense in God's overall plan. So, parking garage attendant number four or five, whatever I said, I hope you enjoy being president of the United States. But in all honesty, it has to have some footing, which gets us to scene two, the victorious phase for David. See, David was popular with the people, and he wins so many battles, but most importantly, he wins this very specific first battle with this giant named Goliath. You know Goliath, 72 feet tall, arms as big as me, like kind of look like my arms, I guess. But this popularity for David on defeating Goliath, which is a long, long epic we're not going to get into this morning. You all know the story. Comes at a price. See, the current King Saul is not pleased with David. David is ironically hired to ease Saul's paranoia by playing his instruments, by soothing Saul. And Saul finds that through David. But the evil spirit continually comes upon Saul and begins to try to focus on killing David. It would be if whoever the president is at that time, whether Republican or Democrat, finds out that this random person in the garage has been proclaimed president by a random person who drove through the drive-thru and then sends the entire U.S. armed forces at them. That's a fun time, right? This time leads us into scene three where David is hunted for chapters and chapters and chapters and yet he shows not anger back. He shows mercy. One of my favorite stories in all of scripture is in one of these, almost like a, a, a roadrunner and coyote animated scene. We all know that, that old, right? Some of us are like, who's that? Just, okay, whatever. It's very comical. And the writer of the Samuels makes it almost too unbelievable to read. And yet I think the comedy shows how real it truly is. David's hiding in the back of a cave in one of these scenes, and Saul comes in not knowing David's in the cave, and Saul goes in, and as every human has to do, he relieves himself. You don't know what relieve is? We'll talk after the service, okay? 
And during the relief period, David comes over while the relief is happening and cuts off a portion of Saul's robe. And Saul goes back out from the relief time. Apparently, some considerable time goes by. No, no judgment from here. Thank you. David comes out from the cave and says, hey, look, look what I could have done. Right here. Got your robe. And we see this beautiful story of being pursued and yet showing mercy, which will be a foundation for this heroic king. Not only in those moments, but through his entire kingdom. But David also struggles. And I love that we get to see the insights of David's mind as he struggles with being hunted. As a musician and songwriter, numerous psalms reflect this intense time of persecution. Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie and wait for me. Fierce men who conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise and help me. Look on my plight. You Lord God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to my wicked traitors. After years of running, in so many hilarious moments of back and forth, but also pivotal moments where David has more lives than that double-lifed cat, we see his ascension finally to being king once Saul dies and Saul's sons. And we see God's ultimate plan finally being realized after chapters of back and forth challenging Saul. We see this promise come about where David unites the kingdoms and not only unites them, he extends the borders of Israel to the largest they will ever be geographically. Until we see that David wants to come out of this prosper and build a house for God, God's self, known as a temple. God, through the prophet Nathan, says, no, not you. More on that in coming weeks. But the covenant that God brings to David as a part of this overviewing leadership understanding, this heroic understanding of who David is, is so pivotal not just to David, not just to the Israelites, but this is one of the pivotal verses for us here today. 2 Samuel 5, starting at verse 12. Um, excuse me, 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 12. Pardon me. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house in my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. Say this out loud, this next part. And what? He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What we find here is this is called the Davidic covenant. And the covenant between a person and God is made by God saying, I promise I will do X and you will do Y. And this is one of the few covenants we see in this Old Testament period where God's saying, I'm doing all the work. You just be. Because I've analyzed your heart. I've seen what you've done in your life. You are a hero. And I choose you and your lineage and your offspring. And this guy named Jesus who will be on this throne forever. 
And this prophetic phrase said by God himself to Nathan, who says it to David, is one of those beautiful pieces in all of scripture, understanding who this David character truly is in his whole life. But it's in our fictitious hero worshiping. This is where the overview of this character should end, right? It should be, okay, it's over. Sermon's done. Next song, worship team, come on up. Don't come up, worship team. Because we see in this overview, we see in, in Samuel's purview, that the author almost has a shocking moment and the ways in which this book is written changes dramatically. So much so that I almost wonder if there's a new author in the Samuel cadre of authors. What happens is the king that made him so great also saw that the ways in which he achieved his greatness become undoing both in seen and unseen ways. In David, and more importantly, the people of Israel's hero worship, we see that even the greatest biblical heroes have moments of excess, moments of sin, moments of failure. Which brings us to the last scene in David's life, which is the scene of forgiven. For chapters upon chapters near the end of 2 Samuel, David fails, and sometimes fails miserably. More on that weeks to come. But we see in this excessiveness, that over and over and over, David has huge moral failings. We'll see in the coming weeks, in excess, a do-it-allness in 2 Samuel 7. We will talk about S-E-X in two weeks, 2 Samuel 11. Those who have young ears, it's Bathsheba. You know the, know the story? Maybe just think through, do I want to bring my little kid to this sermon? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Now you know. Image preservation, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Money and power, 2 Samuel 24. These are the excessive things that David just embroils himself in, not realizing the damage he's doing, not only to himself, but those who worship him as a hero king of Israel. What David's life shows is that heroism, unless you're a CGI and or fictitious, is it's an inevitable roller coaster. And not saying this to have you lose hope on your past, current, or future heroes, but to sober the senses, so to speak, that you somehow need some sort of extra deliverer. I hear that all the time, especially in the emerging generation. That Jesus is amazing. Yeah, he's great for an hour on Sunday, but I need an extra hero. I need my sports hero to deliver my team. And when my sports hero delivers my team, then we will finally reach the ascension of awesome teamhood and we'll be there forever, right? Chiefs fans are like, we're never losing another Super Bowl. Sorry, Chiefs fans. Patrick Mahomes will age, I think. I hope. That somehow, I'm great with Jesus for an hour, maybe once a season, maybe Christmas and Easter. But once I find my perfect spouse, ooh, did I hit a nerve? My perfect spouse, that person who I worship as my hero, that person will never fail me, will never fight, will never have a moment of disappointment, of disillusionment. Maybe it's not those two things, but maybe it's a child that you can worship. Not a child, sorry, sorry. Maybe it's a boss and a company, a stock It'll be heroic for my portfolio. Maybe it's being a part of a perfect family that you're so obsessed with that you're willing to worship that as your hero. See, the Israelites longed for a human king to rule them when in fact it is from that human king 
that the ultimate hero finally emerged. We forget that this hero doesn't fight a villain, but he fights death itself. Friends, Jesus, when he comes on the scene, it is not some sort of person that we're following with some sort of fickleness, even though his contemporaries did. We see 5,000 gathered for a free meal. We see hundreds coming, lining up to be healed. They're there for the temporary. Jesus is there to reorient all of humanity itself. I don't know where you stand with Jesus today. I don't know how you can live your life without him, to be honest, because it's hopeless without Jesus in your life. I've tried it. I've tried to have my own personal hero cadre who will lead me through wherever I think I need to go. And in fact, I'm struggling so much to understand how anyone could live without Jesus as the one and only hero in their life. That Jesus will pick you up when you're down, but also he'll humble you when you're proud. Jesus will come and walk alongside you in the darkest of days when you feel like you're all alone. And Jesus will remove people from your life. Sometimes it doesn't make sense, but he'll remove people from your life who have gotten to a God status that need to be removed. Jesus will come and reorient what you think is true in this world and take it all away. At the same time, bring you something so much more valuable that you can never put a price on like a priceless pearl. Jesus will include people in your life who will shatter your preconceived notions in beautiful ways. He'll reform a family that is so true and so kind and so honest, it sometimes hurts. Jesus is so much more than just a hero. Jesus is a savior. And I'd encourage you, for those who have not made that intellectual heart, but spiritual plea saying, I need a savior to take stock of that and to give of yourself here today's morning. Our worship team is going to lead the next song and it's a fantastic lyrics, fantastic words just to hit these points home and invite you to worship with them. And sometimes just throw your entire selves out there that there's no beautifying to somehow make it pretty and clean. There's no dues you have to pay, no movie ticket you have to buy to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ to saying, take me, take my life, take it all. Because when I give it all, I get a hero and a savior who's worth everything.